We're going to be in Philippians this morning. Uh, if you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3. We're going to do something a little bit uh, unusual to start off uh, this, uh, <clears throat> this morning's message. And so what I'm going to do is, you know, if there's, we have some flags up on the platform here, and I'm going to ask you all, if you don't mind, uh, to stand, and uh, we're going to pledge allegiance, all right? So if you're able to, if you're not, you can stay sitting if you want, but uh, we're going to pledge allegiance, all right? So if you're ready, I pledge allegiance to the flag, wait, which flag? Which flag are we pledging allegiance to? We're going to talk about that. Be seated. <laughs> We're going to finish that pledge later on, all right? <laughs> Indeed, there's two flags up here. Uh, not uncommon in many churches in America to have these two flags up in front of the church. In fact, a lot of children's ministries... Um, when they, you know, the, we start the program off with the children, a lot of times they quote the Pledge of Allegiance to each of these flags when they start off their programs and so forth. And um, however, in a lot of countries around the world, um, that is not a common practice. In fact, for example, in France, it would be really out of place, uh, even offensive, um, to have a French flag in the front of the church. You're saying, yeah, well, that's France, right? But actually, most nations in the world, it would be out of place to put their national flag up in the church like this. And um, because when you think about it, um, the word allegiance means loyalty, faithfulness, commitment, obedience, devotion. It's a pretty powerful word, really, the word allegiance, right? And uh, when you think about what it means to pledge allegiance to someone or to something, Is it even possible to pledge allegiance both to an earthly country that is filled with corruption and sin and at the same time pledge allegiance to a heavenly country that is all purity and holiness and that follows the laws of God? Now, there was a time when there was quite a bit of overlap between these two flags. However, today, sadly, the American flag stands more and more for values which are diametrically opposed to those of the Christian flag. And so as Christians, the question is, where does our primary allegiance belong? And so uh, we're going to read the text here in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. Brethren... Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. An example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. 
And so as we look at this text here today, we'll see that the, the main idea, the, the central truth is that we need to align ourselves with those who follow Christ, like Paul says in verse 17, be followers together of me and pledge our allegiance to Jesus and Jesus above all. And so in this text, there are in fact two groups that are being contrasted, which is actually pretty typical throughout the Bible, right? In many, many passages in the Bible, you'll see where God, as He looks upon humanity, really just sees two different groups, very different groups, okay? And only two. And so one of these groups has sworn allegiance to Christ, the other group has not. And so let's take some time now to consider these two groups. We'll start with the one that Paul starts with in verse number 18. Um, that could be called citizens of earth, but enemies of Christ. And honestly, that's a pretty, that's pretty strong language, isn't it, that Paul uses in the text here, okay? In verse number 18, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Strong language. Now, it's interesting that in this first group, um, there are many individuals in this group who probably would consider themselves um, to be Christians, certainly not enemies of Christ. Um, and many of them would, would uh, if you asked them, you know, what their religious affiliation would be, they would probably even call themselves Christians. But they're the same ones to whom Jesus will say one day, depart from me, I never knew you. And so, let's look and see how this group is described, all right? And there are, in fact, uh, three primary characteristics about this group, and they're listed in verse number 19. We're going to take them in the opposite order that they're listed here, but verse number 19, the one characteristic that we see says that who mind earthly things. So, the main focus of this group is on earthly things. These individuals are more comfortable in a worldly setting with a worldly crowd than with a group of Christians. Uh, they definitely prefer uh, worldly activities, worldly amusements over spiritual investments. Their goals, their life goals and weekly plans revolve around things of this earth. And so first, you know, life is all about getting an education, playing sports. Uh, then life is all about getting a job and making money. Uh, after that, the focus on finding a spouse, having kids, you know, making a nice home, etc. Striving to be happy is everything. Striving to be holy for this group, not in their thoughts. Now again, there are many in this group that may call themselves Christians, but reading the Bible uh, actively serving in church, making sacrifices for the Lord Jesus Christ, not high on their priority list. When it comes to sports, I mean, they're willing to get up early, uh, drive long distances, sit in the cold or in the heat, sit through long innings, uh, put up with rowdy and rude fans, etc. No problem with that, but it's unthinkable for them to expect the same kind of allegiance to church. So, for example, you know, getting up early in order to come to Sunday school. You know, it's, it saddens my heart, honestly, that even in this church, uh, our Sunday school attendance is less than half, less than half of the Sunday morning worship service attendance. Can't figure that one out. But um, sitting, can you imagine this, sitting in a non-air-conditioned building. Well, I'll tell you, when you would separate the, you know, 
uh, Christians who are really committed. We go overseas, and I traveled in Africa and went to churches there. No air conditioning. <laughs> Oppressive heat. And yet, boy, you see those people come in. You know, they deal with that. They come in joyfully into the house of God. Uh, enjoying services which go longer than usual. Putting up with other attenders who may be rude or, or uh, impolite at times. All of those are reasons enough for this group to stop going to church altogether. That's just one characteristic of this group. They focus on earthly things. Also, the next characteristic in this group is that they revel in things which are shameful. The text uses the phrase, whose glory is in their shame. That, that ought to sound very uh, contradictory, right? Their glory is in their shame. The very things that God describes as shameful in the Word of God, things that He even calls abominable, American culture enjoys, revels in, flaunts. There's not even any pretense of shame anymore in our country. Major cities in America organize gay pride parades as they flaunt what God calls an abomination. And by the way, in case there's any question in your mind as to what the Bible says about this, okay, there's some people who still wonder if the Bible actually makes a statement about Leviticus 20.13, just one example of many, but it couldn't be any clearer, right? If a man also lie with mankind as he lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. Can't get much clearer than that. If you want to know what God's view of this particular practice is. And yet, the sitting president of our country, uh, who does call himself a Christian, uh, gave a speech in June, just a couple months back, and this is from the official government website, okay? This is what President Biden said. He said, pride is back at the White House. Pride Month represents so much. It stands for courage, the courage of all those who proudly live their truth, not the truth, right? Their truth. This month, on the way to the office, I walk through from the residence to the Oval Office. Every morning, I walk through a hallway lit with rainbow colors of pride. What God calls an abomination, what God calls shameful, the highest office in our country boasts of it. The shameful behavior doesn't stop there. While a very small number of people in this country cannot figure out what biological gender they are, their shameful lifestyle is being forced upon all of us as some 13 states now issue gender-neutral birth certificates. In addition, for several years now, the state of for about 10 years, the state of Colorado has been attempting to find a baker by the name of Jack Phillips for refusing to design, to design cakes to celebrate a homosexual marriage, or in another case, for a gender transition celebration. Because he wouldn't make those cakes and, and respectfully de declined, he's been pursued for 10 years in court by the state of Colorado. Just last month, the Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal by a florist by the name of Baronel Stutzman in Washington, the state of Washington, who has been fined for refusing to make a floor arrangement for a same-sex wedding. The University of Iowa, 
denied official recognition to the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry, well-known, been around for years and years. They refused official recognition recently for ref because this group refused to allow non-Christians to be leaders of the group. I mean, how nonsensical can, can you get? Refused official recognition because they wouldn't allow non-Christians to be leaders of a Christian group. Keeps going. The governor of Kentucky has threatened to not renew a contract with a Christian foster care agency because of their policy to not place children with same-sex couples. In Virginia, a new law would compel both churches and Christian organizations to hire employees who do not share their beliefs on marriage, sexuality, and gender identity. Hey, dear friends, this is getting really, really close. In New York, Several state legislators are trying to bar Chick-fil-A restaurants from hiring rest areas because the CEO, Dan Cathy, holds conservative views on marriage and sexuality. Now, this, this is just a smattering of what's going on all around the country. I mean, in the highest positions, governors, state legislatures, the Supreme Court are siding more and more on the side of what God calls an abomination. And more and more, we are becoming the focus of their attacks. And this church will not long escape. But whether we talk about other sins, pornography, abortion, drug abuse, gossip, cheating on your taxes, cheating your employer, cheating on your wife, it is a wonder. It is truly amazing that God still is withholding His judgment from such a country as ours. But notice what Christians are exhorted to do. If you want to turn backwards, just, just before Philippians is the book of Ephesians, just turn backwards one or two pages, you'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. Notice what our position should be. Notice what our reaction should be as we see our country embracing what God calls shameful. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Notice what it says. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Okay, it's pretty clear, right? <clears throat> Christians are called to speak out against evil, to take a stand for truth and for righteousness, and even to rebuke those who are flaunting their sin. Now, surely that's not going to make us popular, but that's what we're commanded to do if we are citizens of heaven, as we're going to see in a moment, okay? There's still a third characteristic of this group, citizens of earth. Their focus is on earthly things. They revel in things which are shameful. And thirdly, their God is their belly. Okay, the text said whose God is their belly. Their life is dominated by carnal desires. And the flesh wins out over the spirit at pretty much every turn. And so they live for the next bash. They live for the next party, for the next vacation, for the next distraction. Or they live for work, for making money, for gaining material possessions. That is their God to whom their real allegiance belongs. However, that is a God 
that can never bring any lasting satisfaction, as I know a lot of you understand. When your belly is your God, you will never be truly satisfied and content, nor will you have any real and lasting joy. And I speak as one who experienced that for too many years. Before I was saved, I would live for the next adventure, live for the next goal. And yet, when that next goal was attained or when that particular experience was over, the emptiness was still there, always there. I would try to fill it with something else, always in vain, until I came to know Christ. That was the game changer, right? And so, that's the, descri- the description of these. What is now the end of this particular group, the citizens of earth? And the text tells us in verse number 19, whose end is destruction, destruction, eternal doom. The interesting, the Greek word that's used here is an interesting word. Um, It has the idea of causing someone to be completely severed from what could or should have been. That is, they're severed, cut off from what God had desired for them. This is really interesting. It means, it doesn't mean annihilation, okay, the word destruction. It means loss of well-being rather than loss of being. And so clearly this is a reference to hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there will be eternal regrets, where their worm does not die, where the fire never goes out, where they'll have no rest neither day nor night. That's the destination of those who are in this category. But you know what? This is, in fact, the fulfillment of their wishes because throughout their entire life, they desired pleasure more than God. Throughout their entire life, although God called out to them time and time again, they refused to listen. And so now in eternity, they get their wish, an existence without God. And most tragically, some of them will be under the impression that they were Christians, that they were as good as in. Before I, became, before I was saved, I, I thought I was a Christian because I was baptized as a baby and, and attended a church with no concept of repentance, no concept of conversion, no concept of being born again. But again, this is the group that, for many of them, when they stand before the Lord one day, they'll hear those terrible words from the Lord Jesus Himself, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. The good news is nobody has to remain in that group. That's the group we all start in. Nobody has to remain in that group. And so Paul presents a different group here, a second group, that is called citizens of heaven and followers of Christ. In verses 20 and 21, he says, for our conversation, and the word there literally means citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the workings whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. And so the second group called citizens of heavens and followers of Christ. How are they described? Again, there are three distinct characteristics for this group. First of all, their main focus is on heavenly things. 
As the text says, for our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they intently await and long for Christ's return in glory. In fact, the word look carries this idea of waiting with great anticipation. Kind of like the young lady who's waiting for her dashing date to arrive and who keeps looking out the window, you know, to see if his car is pulled up in front of her house. And so that's how we await the coming of our Lord. Now, the wait might seem long, and yet we ought to be reminded how long the world waited for his first coming, right? From the time he was promised, the Redeemer was promised until Christ finally came. There were quite a few thousands of years that passed, right? And so not surprising that we've waited so long, but it surely doesn't seem like it could be much longer until the Lord will return. What is certain is Jesus has given us a firm promise when He said, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. His coming is more sure than the rising of the sun is tomorrow. Martin Luther was known to say, I preach as if Christ was crucified yesterday, was resurrected today, and is coming back tomorrow. That's a pretty good motto for our life, isn't it, actually? I'd like to invite you to take another passage. Uh, just after Philippians is Colossians. And so if you just turn one or two pages and go into the back of the book, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, another text that kind of relates to what Paul says in Philippians. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1, we read, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And so it's interesting, a Christian is not a citizen of, her, of earth who hopes to go to heaven one day. That's not what a Christian is. But rather, a Christian is a citizen of heaven who considers himself to be a foreigner here on earth. And so he seeks those things which are above. He sets his affections on those things which are above, things of eternal value, rather than on the fleeting things and oftentimes the shameful things of this earth. The only treasure he really cares about is his heavenly treasure. And his conduct is determined not by the laws and shifting values of our society, but by the unchanging law of Christ. And his heart's prayer are the very words of Jesus when he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians we go around with our heads in the clouds, all right? To the contrary, one thing that really surprised me when I first started reading the Bible when I was in college, one thing that surprised me is how, how practical and down-to-earth the Bible is. And so it relates to every part of life, whether it's relationships or work ethics or money matters. However, in addressing these various topics... God provides a different, very different perspective to the believer, which changes everything as a Christian begins to look at the world through God's eyes and with God's values in mind. So, a Christian 
is described, first of all, as one whose focus is on heavenly things. Secondly, one who revels in things which are spiritual. Revel or delights in things which are spiritual. So, our desire is to see our vile, sinful bodies become glorified. That is to have these corrupt mortal bodies be transformed into the image of Christ's glorified body, which is an amazing thought, isn't it? This text isn't the only one that says it, by the way. Uh, there's also a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, another one in 1 John chapter 3, that say the same things, that the day will come when either we're raptured or when we die at the resurrection, that we will receive a new and glorified body like unto Christ's glorified body. Incredible. And so, instead of like the first group would do, okay, the citizens of earth, they have a near worship of the human body. They have a, they are absorbed with, you know, uh, in France, the expression always was, la santé c'est tout, you know, health, physical health is everything, they would say. That's what really matters. That's what you need to care about. That's what you need to be focused on. But for a Christian, instead of being overly concerned about one's physical ailments and limitations, our longing is to receive that new body. I'm always blessed when I'm with believers who are going through some really physical, um, some real physical challenges, and how they'll share with me and say, boy, my desire is just, you know, in God's timing, you know, is to leave this tent and just, you know, put on that spiritual tent. And they just look forward to that moment. And the text goes on to say, in verse 21, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And that word working has the idea of dynamic energy. And so this is where the Christian finds his source of strength right now to press on while we're still in this corrupt body. It's that Christ lives in us. And Christ's power is at work in us. And so when the battle begins to rage when temptations assail us from every side, when Satan fills our thoughts uh, with the idea of giving up and giving in, think on these words, by the dynamic power that he has to subdue all things. And so it's true, one day the Lord will transform our bodies, but even now, his desire is to transform our heart and our spirit. There's another verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 that says this. Uh, it's a, a version I came across. I think it says it well. 2 Corinthians 3.18. All of us are transfigured by the Spirit of the Lord in ever-increasing splendor into His own image. That's just a precious thought. All of us are transfigured by the Spirit of the Lord in ever-increasing splendor into His own image. And so truly, all of us our works in progress, masterpieces of the Lord in progress. And then third characteristic of this group, it says that their God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Their firm and settled conviction is that Jesus Christ is really, truly who He says He is. He is the Lord and the only Savior, and there is no other. And so they live in the light of that truth. They're our allegiance is to God first and foremost. 
that Jesus might have the preeminence in all things, says the Bible. And so we believe and we know that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so for us, having called upon the Lord Jesus to be our Savior, we now live with Him as the Lord of our life. But one day, every tongue, the Bible says, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're in Philippians. Look at chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9. Notice what it says here. Philippians 2, verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name of, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the Bible says one day Pontius Pilate will say Jesus Christ is Lord. One day Hitler will say Jesus Christ is Lord. Bin Laden will confess one day Jesus Christ is Lord. The entire universe will proclaim this truth that Jesus is Lord. And one day, everyone in this auditorium and everyone watching will also make that confession. And it won't be just words. You will mean it with every ounce of your being. You will say it with conviction that Jesus is Lord. But the tragic thing is, at that point for many, it will be too late. The question is, what is Jesus to you now? That is the question. That is what will determine where you spend eternity. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It starts by saying, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he died on the cross for your sins, and on the third day he rose triumphant over the grave, he says, If you believe that, and confess with your mouth with a sincere, honest confession that He is the Lord of your life, He says you'll be saved. So, dear friend, if you've never done that, would you be willing to confess that Jesus is your Lord today? That not only He is the Lord, but He is your Lord and Savior. You need only believe that Jesus died for you, Believe that he paid the terrible price for your sins on the cross and call out to him and receive him as your Savior. And the Bible says every time a soul does that, at that very instant, that very moment, that person cries out to Christ in saving faith. At that very moment, the Lord saves him, makes him a new creature, makes him a citizen of heaven. And so what is the end of this group? What is their eternal destiny? Well, the text says it's, it's heaven. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. That is where our citizenship lies. That is where our allegiance lies. That is where our heart lies. Where there will be no sickness, no pain, no tears, no death, 
perhaps best of all, no sin. All the saints of all the ages will be there. All our loved ones who died in Christ will be there. The triune God in all of His glory and majesty will be there. There'll be no sun or moon, the Bible says, because the glory of God will lighten that city with the streets of gold and its gates of pearls, its walls of jasper. I mean, who would not be thrilled to dwell in such a place? Probably one of the most shocking things I ever heard somebody say, I was talking with the Jehovah's Witness one day, and this, it was a woman, and she said that she was glad that she would not be going to heaven because, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe they're going to go to heaven, which they're not. But uh, she said, I'm glad I'm not going to go to heaven. She said, because it sounds boring to me. <laughs> Can you imagine anyone saying that about heaven? I mean, if you've read what the Bible describes in heaven. To the contrary, as believers whose citizenship is in heaven, our hearts should race. Our expectations should be great each time we think of heaven. Is that where your heart lies? Is that your ardent desire to see Jesus coming in the clouds of glory and to be caught up with Him in heaven for eternity? Paul said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far, far better. John closes the Bible with this phrase, even so, come Lord Jesus. May that be the longing of each of our hearts here today. And so the question is, with whom, with which flag do you align yourself. Paul exhorts us to align ourselves with those who follow Christ and to pledge our allegiance unreservedly to Jesus. That is where our first loyalty belongs. But I encourage you to examine yourself honestly today. What characterizes your heart? Now, dear friend, this is the most important matter of your life. What characterizes your heart? Is it your desire to be a friend of this world, to enjoy what this world has to offer, or do you seek those, do you earnestly seek those things which are above and long for the coming of the Lord? These two groups could not be more different, and their destination could not be more different. And so the central question is, where is your allegiance? And if you're unsure, if listening to the message today, you feel unsettled, like I'm not really sure which group I'm in, then dear friend, no, you can settle that today. The Lord is inviting you today to surrender your heart to Him, to recognize your need of a Savior, to recognize that Christ died for your sins and that He's willing to forgive you if you will call to Him as the Lord Jesus Christ and invite Him into your life. And so, after we, as we finish the service today, at the very end of the service, when you're dismissed, I'm going to stay up in the front here. If there is anybody here today who has any questions at all, about 
what your spiritual status is, what group you belong to. If you have any questions, any doubts, please come on. I'll be happy to take time to talk with you and try to help you with that. And so to, cl- to close, we're going to go back to where we started. We're going to say a pledge. But today we're going to say the pledge to flag on the right. And it may be that I don't know how many of you folks know this pledge. Probably a lot of you maybe don't, or it's been a long time since you've said it. And so I put it up on the screen. So let me ask you one more time to stand, please. And this time we're going to complete the pledge to the Christian flag. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this topic today is just so vital. I know, Lord, that many, most people in this auditorium have already settled this matter in their hearts. But it may be there's some Christians who have drifted away from their first allegiance, who perhaps have lost focus of what should be their priority. And so today may be a call to them to come back, to to renew that commitment to Christ, to reorder their the goals and priorities of their lives. But Lord, undoubtedly, in a large group like this, there are also some who are still in that group of earthly citizens and who need salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that today, if there's any among us here that are wrestling with this question, that feel unsettled right now because you don't really know where you're going to go when you die, where you're going to spend eternity. Oh, Father, today you have the answer for that question. Today they can find that salvation that you offer and leave this place with peace in their heart, know that they've been reconciled with you, and know that they have become citizens of heaven. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts. Draw them to yourself, God. Help them overcome any inhibitions if they need help. They want to talk, Lord. Help them to overcome that and to to seek out some Christian here today that could help them to to find the answers to know how they can be saved. Lord, Lord, thank you for your word, which is just so clear. There's no ambiguity in what we read today, Lord. And so there shouldn't be any ambiguity either in our allegiance and where our allegiance lies. So thank you, Father, for bringing us together Thank you for all these things that we've heard. I pray that as we leave, we would continue to think on them. That, Father, you would bring us back again tonight. That, Lord, everyone here would recognize the value, if they can be here, see the value of being back in God's house on Sunday evening as well. But, Lord, help us to live our lives in a way that truly honors you and reflects the fact that we are citizens of heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.